Welcome to the Missouri Wind and Solar Podcast. I'm your host, Wes Shank, coming to you from our store in Seymour, Missouri. Each week with my co-host and Missouri Wind's General Manager, David Medeiros, we discuss the latest on renewable energy. Check out our additional educational information on our website at mwands.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast, and please subscribe. Thanks for joining us again. We've got an interesting podcast today. Since David bailed on me and went to Europe, I think, for vacation, or I don't know, he could have violated his parole too. The verdict's <laughs> a little bit out on that. Never know, never know with McDerris on that. But I've got Sam in with me today. Sam's our sales engineer here at Missouri Wind. And we did a podcast with him. It's probably been a year. I think it's been two years. Right, almost. two years? Yeah. Okay. So, because it was like, Two days after you came to work. And it's it been like, two years then, Wes. <laughs> it's like, Sam, come here. We need to do a podcast with you. Our podcast we did back then, if you haven't taken the time to go through and listen to all of the episodes, Sam lives in a tiny house. And he did a podcast with us back then. And we just decided it'd be a great time to do an update with him on how that's going, just some tips and tricks and what he's experienced and just kind of talk with him about that. So I welcome Sam on the show. Well, thank you, Wes. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question I had for you was, I don't know if this is going to be a zinger, you know, 60 minutes hard copy question, but do you consider yourself and what you're doing homesteading? Yes, I would say it's definitely considered homesteading, especially as things move along. I mean, we just put in fruit trees this year. That's okay. a big step towards the homesteading. How many acres did it's 44 and a half acres is what we've got. Oh, wow. So there's a there's a fair bit of property there. Now, to be fair, about a third of it is pretty much vertical, so it's not like I can put oh, anything on that. But yeah, lots of lots of changes going on there at the homestead. So fruit trees, what else? Right now, between the fruit trees, we did just have about six acres all cleared with a track loader. Because before that, it was 44 and a half acres of all oak and hickory trees. So it was a pretty big deal in terms of getting all that cleared out. That's been a great help to us in terms of just, you know, living space and the ability to put new stuff up in the yard, brick-fired oven, that sort of thing. So we've definitely made a lot of changes there. And some of this other stuff, I'm sure you're going to talk with me about, like our new rain catchment system and stuff like that. Yes, I was going to ask you. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I remember when you had a bunch of that work done, I didn't realize it was 44 acres. That's a heck of a... Yeah, but you're a, but you're on the side of a hill yeah, so to it, some degree. Yeah, the, the properties. <laughs> yeah, the, the property's kind of stair step. So up at the very peak at the northern, what I'll call the northern border for argument's sake today, there's a hill around here. They'd call it a mountain here in the Ozarks. It's about thirteen hundred feet up. Our place sits at about twelve hundred feet on not necessarily a plateau, kind of a shelf type area. And then down beyond that, you go down to about 1,100 feet where our spring is. The rest of the property is little rolling hills and gullies, as as I would call it. People around here might call it a holler. But it's all wooded for the most part. I mean, except for right there around the house where we had it cleared, it's all oak and hickory trees. A few dogwoods and stuff like that intermingled. But Now, I know one of the challenges that we've talked about and tried to figure out, and I've you know tried to payroll deduct from you, <laughs> is putting in wind. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the tricks there with wind turbine in general, and I'm sure you guys have discussed this in some of your other podcasts, because I'll even admit I've not listened to all of them. I'm sure after the, after this one's over, I'm going to be getting fired here. We'll Jeez. see. But you have to have a turbine up. Generally, we recommend you know 10 to 15 feet or more above any obstruction within 200 feet. Well, when I've got 80-foot oak trees around, that becomes kind of difficult. 
But that's one of the challenges that I think we're soon going to be able to address based on the terrain that we had cleared and some other building projects that are going on that we can discuss. Well, now, how does the the mountain play into that? Because that's got... That's exactly it. So the primary direction of my wind would be from the north. Well, to the north is where that mountain sets. On the other hand, I have had enough area cleared there that I should be able to put the turbine up almost to the top of that, which is going to make life a little easier and get us some really, really good wind. But now now you're talking about, though, the run that it would take you to get the power down to the- That's correct. But the area is so steep, and with where I'm at, the cable run would be about 300 feet, which is a good ways, but it's not anything that can't be taken care of with proper cable sizing. And realistically, we'd be using a 48-volt turbine, which is going to help us with those longer distances. And we'll use appropriately sized cable, probably buried in conduit. When do you think, when are you planning that? For my parents' house and my house, which we're building my, my folks' place now, for us, I'd like to think that we could do the turbine project sometime within the next six months. Realistically, every time I set a date to something, it gets pushed back a year. <laughs> so sometime soon is what we're talking about. Right now, the primary project is my parents have decided to move onto the property as well. So pretty much all projects that we're doing have stopped except for building their house. So I know we, we want to talk about some other things and don't want to just focus on the energy needs. So you are using, right now it's primarily, or you're only using... It, it's solar, solar and a backup generator. Generator really doesn't run that much unless we get, you know, four days worth of real heavy cloud cover. Then the generator will come on for a few hours, recharge the batteries, and we're good to go again. So far this month, the generators ran twice. Not that big of a deal for the entire month of November, which around here starts what they call in Missouri the mud season. And... I mean, for all the rain we've had, it's done really well as far as the overall system goes. So rewinding a little bit, help us remember. So how big is your place? So if you you count the loft, it's 448 square feet. If you do the deck included, which I've got roofed over, it's 500 square feet, basically even. So it's not a very big house, and it's just the two of us and our two dogs. As far as our overall power demands and stuff like that, heating is all taken care of with wood, although we do have a propane space heater for backup. Hot water is an instant propane heater. Cook stove is propane as well. And this is, I want to stop you here because this is a a great moment to kind of talk about what we do at Missouri Wind. Mm -hmm. So alternative energy is, you know, very much our gig. But we also realize, I mean, I think all of us do, is that in some environments, you're going to need... Fossil fuels will always have their place. Something... Especially in the early stages, right? So as the system grows and we get more and more stuff done, eventually I'll be able to phase those things out. Wood, by most standards, is considered a, rem- a renewable yeah. fuel anyway because if I plant a tree and I burn it, I'm just releasing the same carbon that I put out. But there are areas like with hot water. I mean, if I only used five gallons a day, an electrical system to drive that isn't that large. If I were to use 60 gallons of hot water a day, the electrical system and the cost of ownership for that, it takes a lot longer for that to balance out. And we all have budgets that we have to stay within. Right. And if you're balancing between homesteading and wanting to live an alternative energy lifestyle Mm -hmm. or a green energy lifestyle, I mean, all of those needs here at Missouri Wind, we can help you meet those different needs. But there's not a, I guess what I'm trying to get to is there's not a wrong way. There's not a right way. I mean, there's the way that, that you... There's the way that makes sense for you. Yeah, exactly. Now, the thing that I would always throw out there, one of my things, you know, we're talking about building. And I think, me personally, having come, just my background, I mean, I'm a big fan of propane for my cooking, propane for heat, propane for, you know, like 
our clothes dryers propane. And the thing with there is, is they're, they are, while it is a, you know, it's not a renewable and it's not something that we can do, they're incredibly efficient. Yes. I mean, if you've ever used a, a gas dryer, I mean, it takes you, you know, 10 minutes to dry your clothes. You, and if you were using electric before and you're like, oh my gosh, there's no way this can work. But propane and, and natural gas incredibly yep efficient for what they do. Yeah. And your cost of operation is usually a lot lower compared to an electric appliance as well. That really comes into play, like you were saying, with a with a dryer. I mean, the amount of propane you would burn versus the electrical cost, it takes a long time to make up that difference. Right. Now, what I would do and what I want to do when we build is I want to I want to make sure my appliances are in such a way, because I am, I mean, I'm a homesteader at heart, though I don't live that way yet. I'm working toward it. You know, the old rule that, what is it? One is none and two is one. I mean, in my idea of looking at it, I mean, I would have, I want to have a propane stove, but I also want to have electrical hookups that if, you know, there's an issue getting propane, pull it out, put an electric one in there. And, you know, now I've got to have power generation for that. But if you don't have propane, you can't. <laughs> yeah. There's so, nothing so like you can a, do. If yeah. It. So like at my house, wood is obviously an abundant resource. So my particular grill, it's charcoal or wood, not a big deal. And honestly, I probably cook on that more than I do that propane stove in the house, especially in the summer months. Keep the heat out. To keep the heat out yeah, of the house. Because, I mean, I'm, a, because I'm running a, you know, I'm running a 12,000 BTU air conditioner on my solar system. And so if I can avoid having to take and remove more heat from that building, the better off I am. I mean, that's a good plan, just period. I mean, we yeah. do that at the house anyways. Like, yeah. you know, do I want to cook that? No, go outside. <laughs> you don't have to mm-hmm. get up cool outside. Which brings us back over to, uh, it's interesting you're talking about that, the AC that you have, because I know you're looking to put in one of the- The new mini splits the, the that splits we have coming in. Doing, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely for my parents' house, because we're building them a 48-volt system from the ground How up. How big is that place going to be? It's going to be 700 square feet for them. They will have a loft over about a third of it, but I'm not going to consider that as living space. My dad's over 60 years old, so they're not going to be not going up there and climbing the up there to sleep. Plan. It's going to be storage is what that's going to be. And when Joel L. gets tired of you. Yeah, yeah. When, whenever the wife gets tired of me and she wants to run away somewhere, that I might have to go sleep up there. You go sleep but. in the loft. <laughs> Sam can climb. So we looked at that. So the mini split system, how is that going to compare to what so, you've got right now? That, so you their said, mini you split is actually BTU. Yeah, I believe that we've got a couple different models coming in. I'd have to look. No, at the I'm spec talking about your current. Oh, for me, so what's yeah. your current? So I'm using a twelve thousand BTU, 12,000 just regular BTU, what, what they might call a window shaker, and it does a good job of cooling our home. That said, the efficiency of it, it uses about eleven hundred watts an hour. So that's a pretty healthy load pretty on an off-grid electrical system. By comparison, the 18,000 BTU that's going to be coming in that I intend to use for my parents' house is going to be about the same consumption, but it's cooling a space almost twice the size. So it makes a pretty big difference in terms of efficiency with those mini splits, especially if you're below 90 degrees, which around here is what most of your summer is going to entail anyway. And I'll tell you something else about them. I mean, we've had, I think I've talked about it before, we've had one in the apartment now for a couple of years. And I know this is this is minor, but it's when you're the dad or you're the, you know, the, the mom that has to clean the filters and change the filters out on your system. And remember to go, you know, to the hardware store or wherever you get your filters from. You're like, oh man, I got to go get filters. The filter we got in with the system we've got here, the split we've got here, it has metal filters built into it. that you just clean with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just, it's something simple like that. And you think, well, that's no big deal. 
Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> and, and another thing, while we're on that subject, it makes a big difference of your energy efficiency. If you don't clean filters, the exactly. motor has to work harder. Exactly. Your efficiency drops. Well, yeah. If you if you ever had that situation, <laughs> sorry, if you hear the doors opening and closing, it's Lucy who finds some of the subject matter boring and leaves us. But yeah, that's a big deal. I mean, if your unit ever has a problem with freezing up, I mean, the first thing you always want to do is check your filters, filters clean. Make sure yep. your filters are clean. And, and with these, I mean, you know, Chris has got her little shot back. And I mean, five minutes, we've got effectively new filters. I mean, it's a huge convenience. Yeah. That's, that's kind of kind of nice. Now, I'm sure the filter manufacturers are working to try to figure out how to how to that. avoid that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a very, very interesting deal. So, like I said, I want to keep on just power and energy. Let's talk about some of the other things. Like you mentioned up front, water. And I know one of the interesting things that I remember you talking about is that your place, am I, do I remember this right, that you don't actually have a well? We do not. We had actually planned to put one in, but once we put in the rain catchment system, which was really sort of a stopgap, we found that our needs were more than met. So it's been put on the back burner. Eventually, when we have kids, just for the convenience and being able well, to... Well, is your mom and dad? Are they they're going to do rain catchment. I mean, we're right now we're catching just over on half of our roof, just the, and that's covering more than our needs. I'm usually dumping excess water off every month that I can't use. So it's not really been such a big deal. When my parents move in, they're going to want to have a regular washer. They're not going to use the ringer washer that I bought. Joel loves that one, by the way. So if you guys can find a ringer washer and restore it, they're, they're quite <laughs> handy. But as far as what their needs are going to be, if they're catching off of both sides of their house, they're going to have, you know, three times the water that we have. I'm sorry you said that. And it made my, I know my mom tells a story where she used to have a ringer washer that had motor in it. And gasoline motor? No, it was no, electric. electric motor. And yep. somehow my dad had worked on it and it had a short in it. And she kept getting popped with it. She would get shocked <laughs> and he would be in trouble. Yep. So. Yeah. One thing on those that just a little note. I'm personally wiring in a switch on ours to where it's like a, a foot switch to where if you take your foot off the switch, it stops. Just a little safety note there. You can get your arm stuck in the ringer <laughs> you if you don't watch it. It hasn't, hap- hasn't happened to anybody at our house yet, but if it does, I want to make it easy to turn the thing off. There's a there's a reason why that why they don't saying. exist anymore. Well, there's a reason why people say getting some body part stuck in a ringer. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fact. So I'm sorry, I got us off track, which since David's not here, I have to do all the getting off track by myself. So the rain catchment, when you talk about that, how are you catching? Because this is one of the things is just, you know, I, I always give David a hard time. David will say something like, you know, your charge controller's got to come in and da-da-da. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, okay. Yep, nope. Okay. Rain catchment. All right. Are you talking about, do you just have, you got a roof and you got some gutters and a downspout? Yeah. Are you so, doing, what so, else you doing? So what happens, rain hits the roof. Runs into guttering, all this off the side with the covered porch. Hits the gutters, goes into what's called a first flush diverter, which in this case is just some okay. PVC pipe. All right, all right, yep. So, um, what, the, pipe, so the pipe fills up with water, and inside this pipe, you've got a two-liter soda Big enough for a two-liter soda bottle to fit in okay. snug. As the rain falls into the pipe, the two-liter soda bottle will rise as the pipe gets full. It eventually seals itself off, and you have basically like a 45-degree elbow. Now that it's sealed off, all the rain is no longer going down into that pipe where all your bird droppings and the leaf litter and everything's went into. And it's now going to run off that 45 and into an initial catchment tank. Now, I personally chlorinate my water. Okay, okay, hold on. You, okay. You lost me there, i got to back up. Okay. So, rain's coming off the roof, yep. goes into the gutter. Yep, goes into the gutter. Gutter flows into a vertical pipe about four inches in diameter. After that pipe fills up with water up to, it's like six feet up in the air, where I've got an elbow in, and the pipe 
fills up with water, but as it's filling, it's also raising a two liter soda bottle that's got the lid screwed on it so it floats. Once it floats all the way up to the top, water flows off the top of that bottle because it creates a seal on the edge of it based on the size of the pipe. What's the purpose of the pipe? Okay, the purpose of the pipe and the first flush diverter, it's there to take all your heavy sediment, your bird droppings and everything like that, and it allows it somewhere else to go because when the rain first starts to fall on your roof, it washes your roof. Right, right. It's kind of like washing off your car and then going through and doing a polish, right? So you wouldn't just spray wax right on your car. You would wash it first. Same thing here. I want the water off the roof, but I don't want the bird droppings or the leaves, so I need to give them somewhere to go. But at the same time, I'm not there like tomorrow. It's supposed to rain. I'm not going to be there to run out in the rain and throw a valve after 10 minutes. Okay. So it I does it automatic. So it, it's just the bulb yep. coming up. Mm-hmm. And then when, when it's washed it enough, yep. which is when that soda bottle hits the top of that, mm-hmm. then it diverts into. It diverts into, I have those big ICB totes or what I do an initial catchment in. Because I'm a little paranoid about my water supply, but everybody I would think should yeah, everybody be. Everybody should be. <laughs> um, so the water then goes in. To the 275-gallon ICB tote. I have two of those plumbed up with some valves at the bottom so that they, I can actually get about 600 gallons down there right next to the house. Due to the nature of how our move went and just where I had everything put, that's my initial catchment stage. It's above ground. Now, as I've talked about to my customers here in the store and maybe in the podcast, it's been a little while ago since we last did this, water freezes whenever you get below 32 degrees. Right. So around here in Missouri, it can get cold. So I may initially catch it up there, and I'll chlorinate it there with a pool test kit and the whole nine yards. But then once that's full, on my convenience, again, power being something that I have to monitor, I take a one-horsepower water pump and actually pump it uphill into an in-ground storage tank where it'll gravity feed back into my house. And that gives me a chance to hook up an inline, like a five-micron filter, and just do an initial treatment to help remove anything that might have gotten missed. And see, now that's something I, I thought about here. And when we do our property here that I was curious about, is at what point would you determine that, let's say you've said you've got a 500-gallon tank, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you raise that 500-gallon tank up, okay, right, and let's just say you got it 10 feet in the air to create your, to okay. create your own gravity, so you're pumping mm-hmm. up into it to begin with. As long as you are draining off enough of that water throughout the day, shouldn't freeze should it technically because it's moving yes and no the thing is if it's up in the air though you have air you circulation a lot more yeah and so water is going to freeze from the top down typically in a container if you look at a five gallon bucket sitting on your porch something like that it'll freeze from the top down but something up in the air like that it'll eventually freeze solid if you don't insulate it well enough now if i were to make a water tower like that i would personally paint it black so i had a passive solar effect to keep it from freezing in this region here in southern Missouri, that would probably take care of the problem. But at the same time, now I have to worry about how I'm going to build a structure to hold up that much water. And if you think about this, a gallon of water weighs almost eight pounds. Eight pounds yeah. So that's it's a pretty hefty structure to have to build. And that's something that now I have to worry about it falling. I have to worry about the ground underneath it softening. So I'd have to pour a big foundation and all this work. That's a lot of concrete and but everything else. But how, so f- how far up is your water tank that you're getting enough gravity for you to have water pressure that's not just dribbling okay. out? So we'll talk a little bit about water pressure and gravity in general. You're going to gain a theoretical half a PSI per foot of fall. In reality, with your actual pressure loss from friction on the pipe, it actually comes out to like 0.4 PSI. What's a normal? A normal rate? household water pressure is about 40 PSI, which would mean I'd need a theoretical 80 to 100 feet of elevation. My water tank's more like 
40 feet above my home, which is enough to give me pressure. But that also leads into another product that we carry, which is those booster pumps, or they actually are a little diaphragm pump, and they'll actually lift up to six feet. I have that plumbed in line. Again, redundancy in all things, right? For some reason, my water pump fails or I have to disconnect an electrical system. I'm not without water. It's just not as high a pressure. So you'd have to you'd have to take that 500-gallon tank and get it 80 feet in the air. In order to get, now, that's 80 feet of head. So that'd be 80 feet from the top of the surface of the water. But as the tank drains, your surface drops. So yeah. I calculate it from the bottom. And even if that pipe, that pipe is just pointed straight down. Just pointed straight down, you're going to lose because of the efficiency loss. Just friction in the pipe itself. Just like how you can lose voltage as you run power through wiring at long distances. Yep. Well, so then if you did that, and let's just say, I mean, 80 feet's nuts to raise because I can imagine what that would cost. Yeah. <laughs> so, but let's say if you just had your tank above above ground, the Above the roof or something like that, yeah. so you have pressure, you might have then two or three PS. So would you then throw something like one of those sea flow? I would. Behind the, the tank? Yeah, behind the tank so that it can go ahead and provide pressure to boost it into the house. But in reality, with the lift capacity of that, unless you want, like I have, where you've got redundancy, it at least flows, there would be no need to do that. That kind of falls back into how I initially had to move. I already had had, because for a while we didn't have a water pump, we would haul water to the location because it was a hunting cabin. Well, I could, the way our terrain lays, I can go 100 horizontal feet and I can go 30 vertical feet. So it's really easy for me, based on the slope where my house sits, to put a tank up high above my home. And it was a convenient place for us to put one because there weren't a lot of trees there whenever we did that. So that's where we put our initial water tank and ran water lines in the ground. Another thing about that, again, keeping stuff from freezing. If I'm not there to monitor it, if I go two feet down to the ground at the bottom of my tank, I'm always going to have something below frost line in this location, which is going to be important for keeping your lines from freezing. Because if I just had a, a tank up 20 feet in the air, and now I have a hose that's exposed or a piece of PVC that pipe, hose is gonna... it's going to freeze, and I have to do something to prevent that. And the easiest solution is to bury it. Well, so would another solution to your water be if you buried that 500-gallon tank? Mm-hmm. And uh, then just use one of our booster pumps to pull out of the tank. To, because I would think, how comfortable are you because I'm not having grown up this way. Because I, you know, I grew up in kind of in some of the rural areas where you had a pump on yeah. the. And I mean, if your pump goes out, you're, you're if you're water. if you're on one of the systems that it's it is only relying on the pump to pull in. There's yeah. no tank whatsoever. You know, spare you're going, parts you're going to have or, a bad yeah. day. Yeah. <laughs> so growing up, we had a well until I was about 12, and that was our only source of water. So my dad always had a spare well pump available on hand. He also had a generator available just big enough to run that well pump. Looking at it, you know, long term and in terms of, you know, if something fails on me intermittently, a spare water pump like these sea flows are, are not that difficult to install and they're relatively easy to keep on hand. And the value is good. I, they're not even 100 bucks, I don't think. I think we dropped so, the price on So if I, if I had it to do over again, I might not put that tank in the ground above the house, but I already had it established for me. And whenever I had moved, I'd put up a fence and all this other stuff that made it difficult to put in a tank in my backyard there in the ground anyway. Since the plumbing was already done, it made it pretty easy. If I were building straight over, you know, doing it all again, I would probably leave it right there by the house, bury it in place, and just run it in and keep a spare pump. Because the the pumps are really robust. We've used ours for six years now. Two years of that ever since we moved has been every day. It's been flawless. So I'm very confident in those pumps. Okay. All right. What about your just overall? I know we talked about the the split unit and heating. What about your overall just heating and cooling of the tiny okay. house? I mean, okay. are you? I mean, was six hundred feet? I mean, 
I mean, our place Holy now, cow, it can't be, <laughs> I mean, our place now The the joke I always have is I can cool it with a block of ice and heat it with a Bic lighter. In reality, I burn about a quart of wood all winter. Now, granted, the place That's is all. really well, well insulated. Makes sense. I mean, it's yep. just not, I mean, like I always joke with David, you know, if it gets, I don't even burn wood unless it gets below freezing because our propane heater might kick on and off a little bit. You know, I run 100-pound bottles on that because they won't deliver propane to my location. It's so remote. <laughs> um, so I haul 100-pound bottles in in the back of my pickup, and I set them off, you know, off away from the house. I've got a gas line ran inside. I'll use maybe 400-pound bottles through the winter. That's if I get lazy in about March and just quit burning wood. Otherwise, you know, that's just there while we're gone through the day. As it gets more into December, February, we're going to start burning wood more. Like I say, a quarter is all we'll usually go through. Maybe well, you've got 44 acres too. Yeah. I mean, and I've got lots of standing dead trees that I that are easy to cut down and I can split. The trees that I had all pushed over with a track loader, here in about three years, they'll be burnable. So that'll make even easier source of firewood. Well, have you ever looked into like the pellet stoves and that? What's your... Pellet stoves are a good choice also. You're going to have an auger and a blower. For me, at least, as a man in my early 20s, buying pellets and going through all that versus... Even just going out with a chainsaw and a splitting mall, I can cut a cord of wood in a weekend if I pace myself and don't try to he-man it. So, I mean, for me, that's a you know weekend worth of labor versus a couple hundred dollars worth of pellets. I'm already spending a couple hundred bucks a winter on propane, so why should I go expend more money on that whenever I can do that labor myself pretty quick? All right, I had two more specific questions for you, and then, okay. I'll, then I'll let you. Okay, so we've talked about power and water, you know, huge yeah. things. You know, talk to me about your technology because, you know, I know you and, okay. you, you know, I know you have your cell phone and you, I mean, you're, yeah. you're like, you're as normal as the rest of us here, which is not a high bar for normalcy. Not, no, no, it's definitely not a high bar for normalcy. <laughs> so how are you, how are you getting, so if you're down in a, yeah, you know, I'm kind of down hill, in a dip. So one problem that I did have for a while there and you, you knew about it was cell phone service could be spotty. In the winter months, it's not too bad because all the leaves are off the trees and I'm able to use my signal booster. In the summertime and early spring, that kind of falls by the wayside. The signal booster can't burn through the trees, so cell phone service is hit and miss. Would have been April, May, I had satellite internet brought in by HughesNet. Works really, really well. I've been real impressed with the performance. Energy demands were surprisingly high, though. It consumes about as much as a you refrigerator. Mentioned, you mentioned that. that, that was... It really shocked me whenever I was looking at it, and I was like, wow, 70 watts an hour. That's significant. Now, I used a kilowatt meter. Kilowatt meter strikes again, Wes. Harmon amp. <laughs> but uh, I plugged that in, and I monitor it, and I, I noticed that it was very variable based on weather conditions. Clear, sunny day, I might only use 20 watts. In the middle of a thunderstorm, it's burning all 70 to get <laughs> through the clouds. To pump it up. To get so through. it's having to crank it up. I personally found that, you know, based on my usage and how the system was designed, it didn't act like a huge parasitic load. That said, if weather conditions are going to be real bad for a few days, I may turn it off overnight because I'm not using it. Unless I've got an update that needs to download or something like that, I'll turn it off because it's not necessary. Okay. So, and then obviously that's your TV also. That, yeah, that'll be your... where TV comes from, although we really don't watch much TV. There's too much else to do. But, you know, if, if I have company or if it's a rainy day and nobody wants to go outside, we do have it available and we will use it to watch Netflix or something like that. Tell me about, so it's been two years. Yep. And I know you didn't come from homesteading into homesteading. No. Tell me what has surprised you. What did you bear your soul moment? What did you not plan for that you were surprised about? I know you're an intricate planner. As anybody who has dealt with you in sales know, you're, you're very meticulous. What surprised you? What's thrown you off? Surprised me or thrown me off? 
how easy it was to adapt to it. The first couple months were a little rough going because the place wasn't totally finished out. So, you know, it was a race to get the house all sealed up because it's built on stilts. So getting all the underpinning done and water lines, you know, it doesn't get really cold under there, but you still got to insulate them. So the the ability to get all that done and, and do it in a timely manner was kind of rough. But after that and finishing up the installation of this larger solar system, which it has a smaller 400-watt system that used to run lights and the water pump and the ceiling fan still run on it. Really like the DC ceiling fan that we have here, by the way. They really throw some air around. They, they do, man. Um, I think. <laughs> but uh, after that, that second winter, it was really surprising how normal it is. I mean, you get into the routine of living that way, and it's just life. You know, my parents come over. They're like, oh, wow, you're still using the composting toilet. And, you know, we've lived this way for two years, so it's just normal for us. Lots of little things like that that, that you just get in the habit of, and suddenly it's just life. So nothing threw you a curve nothing from the really, way you did your research? Nothing really threw me a curve on any of it, but you got to remember, too, that it was a, a place where we would go when we would vacation and we would do stuff. We did that for five years. So I had a little bit of time to figure out what was going to work and what wouldn't initially before I got into trying to live there full time. So it, nothing really has been a huge ordeal for us as far as problems, no major breakdowns of anything. It's all been... If even if something does fail, I've always got a redundant system. So, you know, if my space heater breaks down, well, I've got a wood stove. It's not a panic moment. I can order something for it, like a thermocouple I had to order a few days ago. came in the mail according to Amazon. It got delivered today. So I've got a thermocouple to install on that space heater. But overall, nothing's been a huge ordeal that's like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So what's on your wish list? Wish list? A wind turbine finishing up some more of the solar installation for the expansion that I was going to do to be able to run the mini split for now, us. Are your, are your panels static or do you... I actually, my background, Wes, as you knew, I was a machinist before I came to work here and I'd done welding and other stuff like that. So my panels are on a mount that I can turn. Now, I've always said I was going to go automate it. I never have. If I'm home, I can go turn it to get some extra power. Really, that's only necessary if I've got a project I'm doing. Say I want to go run my air compressor, which is a two-horse air compressor, or I've got something else I want to do. I might go turn them then just to get some more peak power to keep the batteries topped off. But otherwise, I, I pretty much What kind much of batteries are you out. using? I'm using some AGM batteries. You are AGM? Yep, I'm using AGMs. They're, they're VMAX. They'll eventually be replaced with some of these North Stars because they've got a lot better charge cycles than the VMAXs do. And you've been happy with the performance? I've been happy with them so far. I do have a battery desulfation system, the power pulses. So that's going to extend their life by several yeah, years. I think we're getting, we're, we're working on getting a battery when our battery folks come in and do podcasts. Yep. Yeah, I think Trojan was going to be coming in to talk with us here soon, is what, I was, what I've been told. Overall, yeah, they've been great. I run an FM80 charge controller. It's been flawless. The AIM 6,000-watt split-phase inverter is way too big for what I do, but I have it available. So eventually, sometime, whether my parents drill the well or I do, we will have that. Otherwise, truthfully, my inverter is oversized for the rest of the system. I could run the air conditioner and the vacuum and the microwave on a 3,000 watt. So it's more than it needs to be, but I have it available. So really, the only the only one you've got on the horizon is that split yeah. system. Yeah, a split system would be the, the real big one on the horizon. Now, we are wanting to go ahead and break ground on an expansion on the home so we have more room. Not so much because it's not enough for us, but because we want to have children in the next few oh. years. So <laughs> that's going to be where the, the expansion really needs to be. Otherwise, for us, it's great. You can oh, hey. sweep the place in like five minutes. I didn't ask you this, but I should have. Your lighting, are you using all LEDs? Or I am using you... all LED. Personally, I like the, the warm white lighting, so I believe they call it like 2700 Kelvin. I prefer that over like the daylight white, your bright white. I find that kind of a blue and unfriendly color. The warm whites are more of a 
I don't know, incandescent light color, which, you know, I grew up with incandescent bulbs, so I'm familiar with them, and that's what I prefer is that light color. I like all the 6 watts. Most of them are actually DC that I'm running right now. Okay. I also have exterior lights, which are actually all our floodlights that we carry here. They're like 900 lumens, if I remember correctly, off the data sheet. But before I had all the area cleared, they'd shine about 50 yards into the woods. Now that I've got it all cleared out away from the house, I can see over 100 yards off my front porch with them shining out into my field. Yeah, and that's just off a couple of lights. I'm actually getting ready to set some up. If it'll quit raining, I will be putting some up over by where my parents' house is being built, so we'll have work lights to work into the evening hours. Okay. So what have I forgotten to ask you? What should any of our folks... Now, let me throw this out to you. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue with you on this one. Uh-huh. You said how easy it was to get off into it, but you've also commented before, and I've heard you comment here at the store, that if you can go grid-tied that you should go grid-tied. And mm-hmm. I've always kind of thought... Why would I, I say I that, want, right? Well, no, no, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the place where we're going to build, we could go grid-tied. Mm-hmm. I mean, like literally the the power company has easement on our property. That yeah. I wish I could move, but there's going to be a pole, you know, in my backyard. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I don't I don't want to do that if so, I don't have to. So, yeah, so, so, so some of that comes down to cost and ownership, right? So if I want to do an off-grid system, I'm going to be spending two to three times for a fully off-grid system that's going to provide all the same functionality that a grid-tied system would. So that's the first one is cost of ownership, right? If you're going to build your house, you're going to do your thing, you might spend 25000 for a really nice fully grid-tied system with a battery backup. You have all your stuff. If you want exactly that same functionality, again, all electric appliances, you might spend fifty or sixty in order to have the exact same functionality. So there are areas where I have hassles that you don't, right? So I'm in a location where I have to haul my own propane. I have to take a day, go in a truck, load it up, and yeah, drive and get not, it. But that's not a function of being... No, it's not necessarily you, so if much. You, if, if you're like me, where I would want that anyway, because yeah. to me, it's just a better, it's just a better value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so another area where I would say that is little things like if I'm looking at, I'm my own power company, right? So as someone who's lived this way, I do it for a living, it's relatively easy for me to take care of all of it because I've got experience with it and I deal with it every day. But at the same time, I'm responsible for my own power. If I get home tonight and I've had a cell failure on a battery, I have to deal with it right now because that's my source of power. Whereas if you're grid-tied and you have a battery right, backup, so in two years, not such a two big years, deal. how many times that happened? In two years, zero times. But at the same time, I'm constantly having to monitor my batteries, make sure they stay charged. Now, there are pieces of equipment that I could purchase that would take care of that for me and potentially automate it. So it, but, it, it but, can be easier. But you're saying you're independent. Yes, I am 100% independent of it. I mean, worst case scenario, if I run out of propane, you know, it becomes a deal where it's a cold shower instead of a hot shower. I have to cook with wood. But otherwise, my system's pretty well 100% autonomous. And that, to me, is one of the big things around here. Yeah. You know, if you were living where you are living right now and you had power run to it, Mm -hmm. if that pole goes down... I would experience a long-term outage. Exactly. That's very true. And that's that's the big thing I keep looking at where I'm building is, do I want to deal with that? And, you know, there's certain... Yeah. And and I can see where you come from with that. One thing about being off-grid, a lot of people romanticize Mother Nature oh. way too much. Well, watch Homestead Rescue. <laughs> <laughs> but, but people will romanticize Mother Nature and think she will take care of you. And she's not going She's to. trying to kill you. <laughs> Mother Nature's cold and heartless, and she will kill you in a second. So anything that you can do, you know, any time I do something, it's a battle against Mother Nature, right? So water always flows downhill. 
you don't think about that until you're installing your own water system and you're like, wow, okay, where can I put this thing at? All those things come into play as far as just your general lifestyle and how you have to live. You know, if I, it's something to where it's normal for me now, but if you've never had to think about the fact of, can I turn my coffee pot on this morning or is that going to affect my battery bank? It's important and you need to consider it. So everything that you run becomes something you need to pay attention to. You were like, hey, these air fryers are awesome. You should buy one. I'm like, well, maybe, but they use so much electricity. I don't know that I really want one. It's something you have to consider. You know, how many conveniences do you want to have? And one other thing that some people really get, you know, on board about, digital clocks. I can't run a digital clock on my system. Power inverters just can't operate digital clocks. They're not, even a pure sine wave is not exactly 60 hertz. It's like 59.999. So Wes, if you have an alarm clock that you really like, it's going to lose like eight minutes a day. You better switch to your phone or get now, something mechanical. And actually, we've remedied that by the, so back at you, Sam. I got, the, <laughs> I got your answer to this one. Good, good. So the clock that we've got now mm-hmm. is being constantly updated by the atomic clock. Okay. See, so that's one way to get so around. So even if it is, you know, it's still losing something, but yeah. it's not losing enough until it until pops it that pops signal back. Yeah. and and fixes itself. So, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, so there, there's lots of little things that once you get used to them, they're just life. And it depends too on what your goal is with why you want to be off grid. If you have an ideological reason like you, Wes, where you're like, I just don't want to deal with the power company, I can fully understand and appreciate that. And it it, it is nice not having to worry about an outage. I mean, the first two months we were living there, we got a call from our neighbor. And they got about halfway through their sentence of, hey, do you still have power? And they're like, oh, yeah, of course you do. So that, that definitely has its moments. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that can also be achieved at the same time with a battery backup to where your quality of life doesn't really drop that much. But you have a lot less to worry about for yourself as a homeowner. As someone who is a young person, you know, learning about being a homeowner, homeownership is a lot of responsibility. Oh, so there's so much to do and take care of. You throw an electrical system in on top of that that you have to maintain in it. Now, it is something to consider. Well, I'll tell you another thing, and I didn't realize this. Outside of the realm of ideology and and all these things, those folks that were just in here from Oklahoma. Was it when Oklahoma? I believe it was Oklahoma, yeah, where legally they were required to have it. Well, it if didn't it say the that. people I was talking N- to. Well, the folks that, that took the bought that big trailer full of stuff, Okay, they said that they could not get financing on their home mm-hmm. unless they were Unless tied they were tied to the grid. grid. Yep. And so... Yeah, that is something to consider too. Which I can understand it. And if you're if you're sitting there thinking, well, that's stupid, I can understand that a bank wouldn't mm-hmm. want to underwrite a project where they don't know if Sam is an electrical genius or you know a mm-hmm. you know a Darwin moment waiting to happen and burn the place down. So I can understand that. But like you're saying, I yeah. mean, there's considerations. Yeah, that- there, there's considerations there. And if you're a really good do-it-yourselfer and you feel confident, there's no reason not to if you want to do it. I mean, it, it's definitely a learning experience. There will be areas where you'll you'll find all sorts of new things out and you'll really be surprised by how much you actually consume electrically. I get that a lot too. People go, wow, you know, I just don't think I use that much. I turn all the lights off. Well, if you've bought light bulbs in the past 10 years, of course you don't use that much when you yeah. turn the lights off. It's well, everything and else. And that's what conversation David and I had last week was just, you know, go through your house at 11 o'clock at night and see how many little blue lights and little mm-hmm. white lights that you see running. And yep. every one of those is. Yep. You were talking about entertainment. I turn my TV and everything off every time that I use it. It gets turned off when we're done with it at the switch. I have it where it's on a switch and I can just flip it off. Because of the fact that it has idle consumption of like 70 watts an hour, the equivalent of a refrigerator just disappearing out into nothingness for no reason because it needs to be ready to receive a signal. 
Now, granted, that has an Xbox and everything else on it, too. So all those things are combining to be that idle You said you didn't have kids. (laughs) I am a millennial, Wes. We're getting an insight into Sam here. I am still a millennial. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right. Well, what else have we left on the table here that we need to talk about? Mm, That's a really good question. What other lifestyle habits and stuff like that do you have questions about, Wes, or anything? I think Um, that's pretty good. Let's see. We never really talked about air conditioning and how I utilize mine. So from a a strictly energy efficiency standpoint, you're actually better off to have the air conditioner running at night if you're connected to a utility grid or if you have a really large battery bank. In my case, the battery bank's relatively small compared to the other loads. So I actually run my air conditioner primarily during the day. It's all set up to turn on once the batteries reach a float stage, which is like one in the afternoon during most summer days. So then the air conditioner kicks on. Nobody's been home all day, so it doesn't really matter if the home warms up 10 or 15 degrees even in really, really hot weather conditions. But you're, what you're talking about is let it run, cool things down. Let it let run, the cool batteries down. Let the batteries stay charged. charged. That way, as I come home and I get into the night, the batteries are still charged instead of draining them overnight. Again, you were talking about battery life earlier. The more times I cycle a battery and the deeper I cycle it, the less life it's going to have. So it makes a difference if I can not cycle it that deeply at night. Okay. All right. Well, I think we've got... Lots of good material here. So if you would like to buy something from Sam, that's the best thing. Yeah, Just absolutely. Come Just give, give Sam a call. But if you need some information, you can contact Sam. He's on our sales desk here. He is our sales engineer, handles a lot of the issues that come up when, when people have specific problems. So really appreciate him from that aspect. Yep. One other thing that is just worth mentioning here, Wes, is those thin film panels. You guys did a YouTube video on the other day. That's what we're going to be using for my parent system just oh, yeah. due to the fantastic value that they provide. I mean, 5,000 watts of panels at 50 cents a watt, that's a big deal. Yeah, a lot of people get thrown by thinking, well, it's a hundred was one hundred and five hundred and five watt, watt yeah. but it it's going to just be a matter of mounting and wiring. But it they're going to be a really good value for anybody that either wants to get a whole pallet or wants to come into the yep. store and talk to one of us. We we'll load you up. Yeah, but they're it's ridiculous how good the value is on those. Okay, all right. Well, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate Sam. Appreciate you taking the time away from the sales desk, and I appreciate the, everybody who's downloading these. If you got any questions. Shoot us an email at radio at Otherwise, I hope everybody has a great Thanksgiving. I hope that I can actually get this edited before Thanksgiving. We're going to do our best shot to do that so that you can give a listen to us while you're driving back and forth from grandmother's house. So thanks again, and we'll bring you some more podcasts later. Thank you for downloading and listening to the podcast today. If you have a question that you'd like to hear us discuss on the podcast, email us at radio at mwands.com. You can follow us on our website, mwands.com, or subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Check out our store at mwands.com and buy some stuff. Buying stuff allows us to continue to produce our educational broadcasts, like our podcasts and YouTube videos. And most importantly, it keeps Lucy's doggy chicken treats coming. Thanks again.